a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together. Hi, this is Gino Borges with the Journey to Impact series. Thank you for joining us today. I have Matthew Moore, who is a multimedia artist and entrepreneur based in Phoenix, Arizona. His art practice explores the broad issue of placemaking, often by creating large-scale installations and environments to achieve a state of wonderment and contemplation and an invitation to change. He uses these tools in his entrepreneurial ventures from founding an architectural design and furniture company to designing concepts for farm to table restaurants. Specifically, Matt is the co-founder of Greenbelt Hospitality, a private public partnership with the city of Phoenix that seeks to democratize the farm to table movement to better educate families on their food systems through a generational amenity in the city center. That's packed with a lot, uh, Matt, and welcome. Welcome so much and look forward to um, feeling the intersection between all of those issues. Thank you and thanks for having me. Look forward to this conversation with you. So uh, before I was originally introduced to you through the Green Belt Hospitality um, project that you are working on, but I wanted to touch uh, first and foremost um, how how all of these things that you're working on are really meeting the moment and sort of being impacted. Um, I know there's different strains to your interest, the artwork, the furniture, the design, the Green Belt Hospitality, and then all of a sudden you have this overlay of the coronavirus. Sort of talk to me about where where you're at, um, both professionally and personally in relationship to the coronavirus and like these different silos. Um, I think it's, uh, man, that's a, that's a really good question. And of course, I think like everybody, I think it changes from day to day, depending on, you know, what decisions are being made or what lens or unfortunately, you know, what's newsfeed blasted in front of you right before you, you turn on the radio in the morning and you're bombarded with something that changes your mindset. But, you know, I, I think that overarchingly, you know, I've, I've, I come as a fourth generation farmer into the world. Um, and there's this sense that when you're farming, there's this idea of an act of God that's always out there, something that you can't control inevitably from the minute that you have seed in your hand and put it in the ground to the minute of harvest. There's constantly these things that we we cannot control. And it's something that's helped me a lot in these times because it seems not to trivialize and how unique this whole entire situation is because it is like nothing we've ever experienced, of course. Um, but that being able to stare in the face of a storm and not knowing what's on the other side of it is something that you have to build your backbone with you know, being raised in agriculture in a way. So there's a, there's, there's a foundation that I keep on trying to come back to and being okay with that. Um, but man, the challenges from each businesses are so unique. Some of them immediate, some of them are like battleships that are 
moving slowly in the night, you know, and you just hope that they can pivot accordingly. But the, uh, be very specific, I guess, if that's appropriate in each one of these ventures. The public-private partnership with Greenbelt is with national parks and state parks and city parks. And so that are, talk about a battleship, that is a, <laughs> a, sure. a juggernaut of a battleship. But, um, you know, there's a lot of things happening that are happening in, in the city mechanisms, but with the generational view of this, we're all working towards it moving forward. And just understanding this as a level of reality that we face in the long-term partnership that we have. So that still seems to be moving forward and we keep on, you know, spinning that plate, if you will, to keep it moving. On the fabrication and millwork side, it is, uh, again, it feels like about two or three months from now is when that precipice is. And that's where we're making, we pivoted right away into creating PP, that, that personal protective equipment for, for hospitals, so like intubation boxes. And we got on, we met with the ER doctor and we've sent, I think about over 200 units around the nation to different hospitals. And so again, that, that layer of purpose was able to appear in the work and help us not be paralyzed by, which is an unknown uh, in the next, each next quarter, if you will. And then, and then the farm itself is just, crazy things that you don't think about. You know, I think that we've all now been introduced to this idea that farmers across the nation are, you know, tilling under product or throwing out milk um, because the way that our supply chain works, it can't meet the customer uh, directly. So again, another one of those big things where you're trying to, the supply systems need to adjust themselves to be able to get the product to the people who need it. And our carrots and other produce are, we make we make uh, barley for for dairies. So our dairy prices are were our, I mean our barley prices were locked in with dairies and they're struggling. So we're coming back with them and saying, hey, like we'll just don't worry about the contract. Let's we don't you don't need to sink on it. And so we're all kind of trying to work together to figure out how we can just not have to do that. You know, so I have carrots that are going to be about 220 days in the ground right now, which is extremely long for that product to be there. But, you know, again, we're hoping that the weather holds a little bit longer and we can just uh, make it through as things move through the course and they might not. And then we'll deal with that when it arrives. So that's a long answer to your question. So that's like yeah. the logistics yeah. part yeah, of yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What what I'd say, see, I mean, take me through that moment of my dad was a uh, third generational dairy farmer, and he talked about sort of the act of God uh, thing, where it's as well. And I always always was impressed on my dad's ability to actually move through uncertainty um, and constantly sort of feel a sense of agency, even though all of these unknown variables um, were so present to him. Uh, like you said, in terms of like nature just can really do a lot of things, whether it's to um, animals in terms of disease and illnesses, or whether it's the pasture grasses or the feeds that are brought in. I mean, there's always something, the weather, uh, labor issues, and so labor sort of applies to everybody, but 
just that general aspect of working with the natural world. But I wanted, I really want to play off this notion of um, what goes on inside of you. What feeling do you typically have a somatic feeling when you're able to take that faith into the secular context, into the cultural context? And let's talk about this Greenbelt hospitality, because in essence, there's from my uh, from my elementary understanding of that process that you went through and still going through, there's been a lot of moments of faith, a lot of moments of uncertainty. And so how, how are you sort of holding that position and how, how do you have agency during this, uh, during cultural projects? Because a lot of people have ideas, but rarely materialize them because they don't have that kind of um, experience with sort of the natural world and experiencing those like, Sometimes it's just much larger than me. Yeah, that's a, I think it comes back to the, I think you even touched on it is, is that there, there is always, I guess in the world of farming, there's always something to do, right? There's always something to be done, even in the face of failure. Uh, if that's tilling the ground under to, to be able to just try again next time. And so in the same way that when you're, when you hit these endless hurdles in a public private partnership, because that seems like what it happens, you have an idea in developmental world and you say, okay, I have this idea. You get your investors and you get your team together and then you start to execute. And there's some hurdles here and there with zoning or planning and zoning or um, just in terms of those hurdles. But when you get into the public-private partnership, when you're asking the community, what is it you want? And you're asking a data set of a, for, for us, it was a, it was a four mile diameter of the site. And of course, like we're humans and, and everybody's got to want that isn't equal. And how do you meet that? And how do you, when those speed bumps come, how do you keep on moving? And you, we face that over the years that we've been doing this, where you, you seem like you, you have some hurdle that is like, Oh, we, that's it. You know, this is all done. And again, with that, with bringing up, there's always something else, even if it's, yes, we're going to fail, but then what are we going to take from this? And we inevitably what ends up happening is, is that you end up salvaging it, you know, and even, even the field that the first field, the first carrot field this year is a 35 acre field that we have. And we thought we were going to lose it. Um, uh, about two weeks ago, we thought we were going to have to disc the whole thing down. Uh, the cedars of the carrots, when they get, when they go to seed, the core of it starts, turns into wood, you know, and you can't really use them anymore. And you can't see the difference between them and on the packing, packing line. So you would be packing wood into your bags and then, uh, hell breaks Luke on the back yeah. end of that but you know so we're staring down the pipe of that and then all of a sudden after two weeks of no mobility no movement no harvest all of a sudden it turns on and then we're able to get through that 35 acres but if you would have rewound the tape five months before that when we planted it we planted that and we had this crazy um rainstorms in the beginning of our planting season and my dad and I were thinking about this is that we, we look back on that and there, we were thinking about disking that field up because we didn't think we had the stand. And so we already thought, okay, well, we'll just, just lean into it and I'll just see what happens. I mean, it's going to be terrible yield and we'll just write it off. And 
here we are and we're worried about that field that we're not going to get the harvested, even though we already written it off and we thought, oh yeah, we, 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 you know, we had already failed, but now we're on the second level of like, oh, we're going to fail again. And it actually did great, you know, and the yield was actually better when you put your mind back, we thought we were gonna have half the yield. We ended up with like a great yield and everything was fine because the carrots got to sit in the ground longer than they normally did. So they got the size more and then they had more yield and it was like, oh, it's all. So it's like those kind of things where if you actually take that thousand foot view rather than being in it and staring at it, you hit these moments where, you know, it's, it's insurmountable and over every single time though. If you, if you lean into it, and you keep on just going, I'm not, you know, you just got to, there's always something to be done. There's always something to learn from it. There's always something to pivot a little bit, to try and push it, just nudge it a little bit further along. And and, and then the dam breaks is, you know, I, and I guess that's that, what is failure sort of thing. I, you just can't think about that, even though, I mean, you, you, you can't let it control your lens of not being able to find a solution or find another mini step forward at any of those moments. And that is that, that backbone of persistence in agriculture. I mean, you look at the Dust Bowl, I mean, oh my gosh, you know, those trying to figure out how to cultivate tumbleweed because Mm -hmm. it was the only thing that could grow on that dirt. Yeah. That's in us as human beings, you know, like I, to persist, you know, in the face of that. But in some ways, your green belt hospitality is a version of trying to grow, um, uh, find a way to grow within a cultural uh, dust storm because it's a very unique project. So let's go back to the inspiration for that and color in some details on what that hospitality project um, looks like, has evolved. But to give us some legs, uh, you know, some tangibility on from inspiration to where it's at now and the hope of the project as you're, as you've been working on it. So I think, you know, my partner, Eric May, who is a third generation restaurateur and has his own trajectory, which I'll touch on, which is much more of the hospitality and understanding operations, understanding the actual experience of the plate and the table. And my experience comes from what we've kind of been batting around. Um, and I went to undergrad at Santa Clara University in San, outside of San Jose, California to get an ag economics degree and couldn't stay awake in macroeconomics <laughs> and ended up taking an art history class. And I fell in love with art and like slide comparisons. Oh man, what a joy. That's actually what I should pick up again right now. <laughs> Not that I have any free time right now. The, that art history then led to sculpture and, and basically just making art. And the inspiration of like everybody's creative process comes from our histories and what we're touching into. And at that point, moment in my life, my family's land was being overtaken by suburban sprawl. And this is back in the 2005, 2004 boom, and especially the city of Surprise, which is where my farm's located, was listed as the fastest growing city in the U.S. for multiple quarters at the time. So that inspiration and, you know, tragedy at first of thinking about losing this family business 
And then I came back from school and started running the farm and watching a change and then starting to realize that it's really complex. And the reason that development is making sense has to do with the reason why conventional agriculture makes sense and that we're a part of this process, but we're still in a process of loss of generational knowledge in terms of where our food comes from and how we continually separate ourselves. So I went on this journey of really around advocacy, around art, and just questioning, not with any answers, because like any good farmer, I have no idea what I'm doing on a daily basis. <laughs> and any farmer that says they know what they're doing is totally full of shit. You can beat that out later. <laughs> but uh, that really I was looking for was at the, if the, the, the really soul and essence of it, because art allows you to use it as a lens to try and understand what's affecting me most about this process and this loss potentially. And in that process, I realized that I had no idea what it meant to be a farmer in, a, in the sense that I put it on the pedestal of that idea of what I was losing and realizing that, oh, I'm a part of this whole process that has lost. That generational knowledge has already started to be lost in my own activity and as a farmer. And so I really wanted to figure out how to, to create a place to answer some of those questions, even for myself and then for community. And then I had two sons and I just refused to not have them, even though, I mean, you ask any farmer kid, the first thing you want to do is get off the farm, but there's something about feeding people and about stewardship and empathy that is a part of that process that is so important for our world right now. And there's so much hope in it. And I think that those art allowed me to think about those, those as the, that's that purpose, social driven core that everything else is built around. We'll figure out how to make it, you know, beyond that, but the, what the the core of this whole, the seat of the project really is around how Eric and myself felt that there needed to be more to introduce people about these important things about hospitality and about feeding people and empathy and stewardship and these key things that actually build community and have a better place for us to live in and farm to table as a marketing, you know, label is really powerful, but it's been lost a little bit in the journey on of business and, and how, you know, it, it's just become a little bit of a branding exercise, but at its core, when you say that for somebody to experience their food being seen at grown, come onto the plate and have somebody serve you and make a meal for you and take those things out into the ground and create community with them is such an amazing, powerful, and generational gesture that goes beyond a lot of the things. And so I think that that's really at the core of it was is to find a place to mature my family's uh, generational engagement with agriculture into something that is much bigger 
and outside the boundaries of what we've ever experienced for that next generation of my sons and our their kids. Yeah, it's a little clunky, but <laughs> but how? But where's that project at now? The last time we talked, you talked about um, essentially you're going to have a um, a project where you know you shopped around for different places. The city of Phoenix was working with you to find different lots around town, but nothing really worked until you said you pointed to the park and yeah. the park as sort of a, and what I like about this is, is that you are layering on different, um, different um, layers of, you have the community, the nature, the density, the, um, and the restaurant, you have all these things. And I think you have a strong sense of what it takes to amplify a moment and yeah. to really amplify. Otherwise, there was too much leakage um, going on in terms of just energy leakage, whether it's human energy, cultural energy, or just physical or just. Uh, yeah, it, but I think you went through a lot of iterations to get to a park. Um, yeah. And and so sort of paint that vision of where it's at right now in terms of if the coronavirus didn't hit, what, or if it, but it did hit. So let's honor where that did hit. Just trying to give people a vision because that's what attracted me to you, to you is when Laura gave, recommended that I talk to you, she says, check out what he's doing at Greenbelt and Hospitality. And it was like, all the things that I love came together. I appreciate that. And so that's what, I want people to taste yeah. what what is coming together, and so put it on the plate for us. Okay, um, yeah, thanks, because I was it was more taking talking about that uh, core of the business when it comes down to actual model of it is really important to be able to understand what I'm talking about beforehand. So, really quickly on the the farm to table movement and a lot of the models that are out right now. What we discovered when Eric and I were painting this vision years ago about, well, why, why is it that one, one restaurant, one farm, or one restaurant and then sorts with a bunch of farms, which is a farm to table sort of like menu. A lot of those are extremely expensive and, and once in a lifetime events if the farm is right next to it. You know? and, and what it is, is a real estate problem in terms of, how do you get in a labor problem, to be honest? But I mean, when you start to put an acre of agriculture and an acre of, of hospitality in a downtown core, that acre of farmland, while the restaurant can pay market rate, that farmland cannot. And so if you bring it into that downtown core, then you're going to have to raise your price per plate to be able to subsidize that, uh, that whole entire venture. So we spent time trying to figure out how to make it make sense. How can you, what kind of, what kind of subsidies might we need to get? And so we started to look at, but we know that we need at least one acre of agricultural land to offset the, you know, the P&L of the restaurant to be able to make it be worth it. And so we had our size minimum. And then also, why, why one restaurant? One restaurant forces you to do certain things to be able to use all that produce and it, it forces a price. And so, well, then let's do multiple concepts. 
And so we started to build this, this, this little map of how we could make this work. And then we went, okay, then you put it against a real estate test. So we have minimum one acre to two acres of farmland. And then we have two to three farm to, you know, uh, restaurant concepts under 10,000 square feet under roof and then big patios and whatnot. So that ends up adding up to around three and a half to four and a half acres. So here's our site. And you go out and you start shopping around, trying to find four and a half acres. Of course, you can find it on the suburban out, outsides, but that's not having that impact that we're talking about. And so we started to go to Maricopa County and asking for agricultural tax abatement on our parking infrastructure. And we started talking to the, the, health, the health inspections. It makes it like, hey, can, can we actually just put one one reefer on the site and then everything goes around that. So we don't have to have this multiple um, place. So we're looking efficiencies in there. And then all of a sudden we got introduced to the mayor of Phoenix at the time, Greg Stanton. And he's just loved this idea and wanted, he's like, you should come and talk to us because we have, we have land and we would love to do something like this. And we're like, oh, awesome. You know? So we go down there and they put the big picture on the wall and Phoenix is the largest landowner in the, in Arizona. And we start looking at sites and Eric and I point at a park and we're like, what's, what about that? And they're like, no, you can't talk to parks. We're like, why not? Like, you know, can we, can we and they're like, no, they don't. That's not part of it. And then the economic development, this woman, her name is Christine Mackey and bless her. She's amazing. She's like, well, I'll get Inger Erickson down here right now and you can talk to her. So Inger Erickson, the director of parks comes down and we're at this big city table. You can imagine it. It's the mm-hmm. table that you all deals are broken upon. It's like 15 feet long and six feet across. Yeah. So we're already on the other side and sitting there with the arms claw across like, Oh, here's some developers again, trying to take her uh-huh. face away. And we just start talking to her about this idea. What if, what if there was a two acre farm that acted like a park in the middle of a downtown density on a, on a piece of parkland and on that parkland, the, the concessions were not corn dogs and cotton candy, but it was, plates were vegetable driven, grown on the park there that people would just walk to, that they go into this regional park and they can buy it there and they could be open from 6 a.m. until 10 o'clock at night. They have approachable, you know, price points all, all day long. And that revenue, then a portion of it would go into the parks, in the parks coffer. And then it could be part of improving parks. And she started like kind of She's like, well, where do you guys come from? And then what I did is I just started showing my artwork, pictures of, you know, agricultural, big land art pieces, these projects I did where I invited the whole city of Phoenix to downtown Phoenix. We took over a mile long stretch of property and put a table down the middle of the street and took over the road. And she loosened up and said, she went back upstairs. She didn't even bring business cards down. And so she had to go back up to her office and then bring back down her business cards because she was so sure that that was going to be a pointless meeting. And then three weeks later, we were talking about this idea. And so the the realm became around, well, we'll give you a five-year five, month, five year lease. And we're like, no, 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 no. 
no bank is going to go behind that. So then we started talking about how the farm, the land wants a generational lease, you know, so 50 years. And we said, okay, we can do 40 years. So we have a 40 year land lease locked up. Um, or, you know, we've been, I'm kind of skipping ahead and going around because yeah, yeah. there was this whole entire process, process of like talking about this idea. And then the park said, okay, we're going to go and we're going to create a request for proposals and we're going to send it out to everyone in the world. So this is this entrepreneurial moment where you're just like, this is the biggest difficulty of public private partnership is that you take your idea you blueprint it out and then you hand it across the table and they say, okay, thanks. I'm going to print this out in different words and we're going to send it out to everybody. And then we're hopefully you have a chance and actually winning it. And so there was this big submission and um, we won by the skin of our teeth, turns out. And, um, and then we went forward with the next process, which was to ask the community, Hey, is this something you would want on your regional park? And there was a lot of other logistics of proving water and all this other stuff, but it really, that was the biggest thing is going out to the community. We had five community meetings. We knocked on 400 doors right adjacent to the park. We sent out 30,000 mailers to a two mile radius of the site. And at the end of the day, we had, I think, 1,500 unique people come through mm. those community meetings, which is bananas. Out, yeah, you know, it's impressive. Outreach. And we had about an, like a 90% approval rating, and which you can't even get that for a dog park. You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, so the model really is, and to, to circle back around to what it is and what it's going to feel like, is about two miles from Sky Harbor Airport, which is in the core of downtown Phoenix, there is this 27-acre park, and four, four and a half acres of that, two acres of organic, annually pro productive agriculture will be there, open to the public as a park during park hours that people can walk in. There's no charge. It's just parkland. And then adjacent to that will be these two concepts, basically, under 10,000 square feet of roof that are serving everything that we're growing year-round. And also, we have a education center that's doing programs that are really specific. There's about 20 schools in a two-mile radius of our site. So mm -hmm. we've already worked with a lot of them about providing the space to them for their curriculum and working with the, any of the, there's an endless amount of people have been excited from the USDA to, you know, the farm service agency, like all these different people who are so excited about having this agricultural amenity in the city core. I mean, it gets down to what we're facing now, which is people are starting to grow their own food when they're holed up in their house right sure. now. Sure. And yep. it's, a, it's a revolution, you know? Which is great. So, um, you, we obviously aren't going to be able to get to all of the um, intersections, but um, where are you at right now in terms of, um, we'll be wrapping this up here shortly. And then, I mean, if you had to sort of like, where's your inspiration? Like, I know that's a long project that Greenbelt Hospitality has gone on for years and long projects come and 
like, oh, I got to throw myself in. Oh, now I got to wait. Got to throw myself in. Got to wait. I know you're also involved in architectural design, furniture, your, and art as well. Um, as we're sort of seemingly or uh, potentially illusorily, I'm just making that word up, coming out of this uh, quarantine, sheltering in place, where's Matt more at now? I mean, where, like, um, if, like, the, uh, you know, you want to leave your audience with some, like, here's what's occupying me now. Well, I mean, we're, we're blessed. We were supposed to open up in November of 2019. And, man, we would have been throttled yeah. right now. And yeah. that would have been tough. The, the reason, I mean, that was like when we wrote our RFP out. And, of course, you know, a lot of things happen in there. The precedent of the project has moved it. So we went from city parks to national parks to make, basically try and make room for this idea on a, the idea always was is to create a template for other cities to use so they could see how you could build this lease, have, have a operator, you know, that was leasing this land and the city still owns the ground under it and we're paying rent and uh, that's a percentage rent on top of that. So there's a base rent and a percentage rent. So if we do well, they do well. And that money goes back into the park, not into the city fund. So we built all that to make sure that this was actually something that be re, could be recreated in other cities. And, but with coming with that is we're the first people that really do something like this. Um, there's a lot of red tape. And so that's kind of like, it's just kind of pushed us along to where we're getting thrown up to that national level. And you can imagine it's just, you're, you don't have really the ability to go tell people like, oh, this is what we're thinking about doing. And it shouldn't be a pitch like a lobbyist. It should live and die in its own merits. And that's what we've done. We've, we've again, cast out the best that we could. We've done everything that was asked of us. And now it's in this process, but we are incredibly close. We do actually feel like the approval, the, the official highest high approval <laughs> will happen here in the next few months. And so we're, we're just kind of moving along like it's happening. Matt Moore as a, <laughs> as a, a lot of the furniture and the design really was, is that I've been making artwork and, you know, being in museums and institutions around the world. And what I found was, is that that design and that want to, that can be a very uh, limited experience, much like democratizing the farm to table. I mean, a lot of the design endeavors came around this idea of like, what kind of space are we going to create that is imbued with all of these ideas of stewardship and the beauty of food? And how can we capture that in a built environment? And originally that was the impetus behind making this furniture company and millwork company was the deal with those interiors. And, um, and it also gave me an opportunity just to start a, you know, run a business and make sure I knew agricultural businesses are so specific. And then when we're getting into a hospitality and, you know, operations and Eric is a genius operator and I'm so thankful to have him because otherwise I'd be sunk. Um, but the lot of the, the the company for the furniture millwork was about building these interior space and imbuing them with the same sense of purpose and hope that I was doing in my artwork, mm -hmm. but on a bigger scale that's sure. more approachable on a day to day basis. I mean, we spend 
you know, I don't know what the net, that number is of in the office, right? How much time we spend there. And so I actually spent a lot of my last couple of years designing adjustable high desks because it has this sort of health and well-being thing in it. And man, they're ugly. And um, next thing you know, this, the, this pandemic hits. Yeah. And I just created my first home office adjustable high desk that doesn't look like anything else on the market. And we're doing a Kickstarter here in the next uh, probably month on that. And we're also creating, I'm creating these uh, partitions for people to be able to get back to the office that are algorithmic. So you can log in, put in what you need that screen shape to be. Huh. And then we're making it out of this really economic material that's a uh, two, you ever seen those uh, political ad signs that are made out of that? They look like cardboard. Yeah. That's a type of plastic. Well, that's, you can wipe that down. And so, and it's really economic. So basically we're making a portal for people to be able to say, Hey, I need this partition as a temporary measure to be able to get back to work. And we're still making it beautiful. So it doesn't look like a pizza plexiglass. So the, the way the algorithm work, it, it sort yeah. of takes that size and makes it almost into a geodesic dome shape. And so people yeah. can get it, clip it together. And then you have your aerosol aerosolization chamber that kind of helps keep everybody safe as we do this thing of transitioning back for the next year, you know? So that artistic like thing and the farming thing that, that sort of, there's always something to do. And the art thing is like, if somebody tells you, you can't like the worst thing, probably my wife's more, and she's the same. So this is going to be whenever my wife hears somebody tell me like, ah, oh, you can't do that. That's like catnip. And it's for catnip for both of us because we're both artists. So, I mean, uh -huh. like, it's kind of like, oh, all your businesses are going to go out. And it's like, oh, no. So we're, re I'm really, again, just trying to ignore the fact that 80% of all of my work for the next six months to six weeks ago was for hospitality. And that's just vanished. And now, sure. but I can make a really beautiful home desk for an incredibly reasonable price built here with materials sourced internationally or actuators. I think they come by way of Kentucky through Asia, yeah. but all of everything else built all here, we can meet a price point of around almost a thousand dollars for a desk. That's gorgeous. And so that's what we're doing right now is just trying to keep people working and keep the businesses going. And yeah, you know, kind of best. <laughs> What a beautiful story. Um, I'm Gino Borges. I'm here with Matthew Moore. As um, Matthew has shared, um, and not only, you know, what sticks out to me, uh, Matthew, is how you mean two different moments. One is the generational moment. I think uh, you have a strong sense of what a generational moment looks like. It's a big window. It's beyond you. Um, and then your stories about how you're pivoting your architectural design company to actually meet, uh, you know, the current moment of COVID-19 in terms of what the needs are, but then also not leaving the beauty out of that, right? I mean, one particular strain that I saw in all your projects is just an inherent um, 
clamoring for beauty as a role in our life, not just the plexiglass, as you mentioned, but mm-hmm. how can we actually invite light into our life through design? Yeah. yeah. How can my life, how can uh, my body be infused with additional breath and feel inspired as a result of what's, what's around me? So uh, congrats to you on sort of intersecting these eternal skill sets of artistry, um, farming, and yet you have to deal with the circumstances. Like, hey, like no one's going to buy my hospitality stuff right now because that's shut down. Yeah. But I'll tell you where the need is. And so I think there's a whole nother conversation uh, some other time about how you've transformed your art into and found somewhat of a bridge into the secular cultural world. A lot of artists struggle with that and vice versa. A lot of business people struggle on 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 tapping their creative side, right? I mean, most because they use the language of efficiency, optimization, and the irony is, is that a lot of those those reductionist measures never get to beauty, that they just get to sheer functionality, which yeah. is an, in large part lifeless. So thank you for sharing uh, your story. I'm so glad that Laura Callahan um, introduced us. And um, it's, fu- it's a fun moment to do a podcast right now. You have your two kids in the back. My young two-year-old just woke up so you can hear him <laughs> him in the back or grounding. But I'm guessing that, I mean, this is going to be our new normal for a while. That's right. Well, best of luck to you out there. And thanks so much for taking the time to just ask questions and even in these times and checking in and seeing how we're doing. That's so much really appreciated. And um, just to know that there's still some forward movement happening out there, which you know is happening, but it's nice to throw these little little seeds out into the, God, all my agricultural, yeah. Everything goes back to like seeds and growing and it's just like, it's even more cheesy when you're an actual farmer. (laughs) It's all good. (laughs) Okay. All right, thanks Gina. Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com.